Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 15th of January with myself, Andries Vandenaar, and my colleagues, Harry Morgan and Peter White. In this episode, we discuss Moody's underrating of NL compared to ExxonMobil and Chevron. Uh, we discuss the Chinese segment of our global wind power forecast, Mitsubishi Power's $1.9 billion hydrogen salt cavern energy storage plans in Utah, which will help power California's grid and how the 182mm versus 210mm cell size rivalry is contributing to China's solar manufacturing boom. So another thing I read today, NL just had their Moody's rating. They've gone from BA2 to BA1. That's wonderful, they're saying. It's great. And then I looked up what Exxon and Duke Energy have, because bear in mind, NL is uh, about 10 times the size of Duke Energy, and they make more profit and they're growing faster. Duke Energy has a higher Moody's rating than NL. Oh, yeah, that'll be because it's American. And Moody's is American, and they can go and see them. I do understand that they do it on the basis of whether they their balance sheet assets are at risk or not. But the truth is, NL is a surging, brilliant company massively well run and duke is a retrospective hundred year old company trying to go backwards i I, I just moody's need to get with the program and realize that the companies threatened by climate action need to be downgraded exxon has a higher rating than either of them exxon's assets are all in the ground and they may end up stranded and it's not reflected in their credit history. If you we want to move money into the into renewable energy, you've got to take it out of the fossil fuel factions. And the fossil fuel factions, what do they do? Do they own Moody's? Well, what's going on there? Do they not recognise that uh, Exxon is a doomed company? Well, the stock market does. So Moody's still haven't got it. I just don't understand it. Yeah, it almost rings bells when S&P were giving um, mortgages high ratings when they were just made of absolute rubbish sort of before the housing crisis. Um, right. it's, exactly, it's exactly the same sort of thing. I think the, the tricky thing with ExxonMobil and, and Chevron and stuff is that the outlook for them going into 2021 is potentially quite positive because I think there will be, I mean, no one's denying that there's going to suddenly be a surge of oil demand at some point where supply is suddenly falling short of that. So prices for oil will suddenly rise in the short term and there will be quite a lot of profit for the oil majors, but it's not a sustainable growth. I think people are just sort of banking on a blip soon where they can get a final little bit of profit out of ExxonMobil Chevron, even sort of BP to a certain extent, before then there's sort of a transition away. I think, yeah, it's just going to be yeah, there's profit, definitely some profit there, and there's definitely some cash flow. They probably are fairly safe lending money to it in the short term, but in a longer term, in a 10 year scenario, we've done the numbers on you know when people are going to use less petroleum. Yeah, yeah, it's it's unlikely that will peak before the, the mid 20s, and that perhaps calling peak oil in 2019 is maybe a mistake but no one knows because no one knows the effects of this um, pandemic and what it's going to do to the permanent behavior of businesses and how many people work at home and how much traveling we're going to do certainly the air industry is not coming back full stop i mean i don't know why people think that in two years time we'll all be flying as much as we used to i just don't think that's ever going to happen there are plenty of reasons to not travel but having 27 new variants of coronavirus outside your country is certainly going to be one of them. And that's going to continue to happen. So, so certainly it's going to be some short term stuff. But long term, oil's going away. I mean, that's straightforward. 
any company who who spends its time saying we'll just stick to oil we're not going to diversify in any way shape or form because that's what we do is blinkered short-sighted badly managed they're not spreading their risk they should be marked down and exxon mobil is the uh, and chevron even chevron's not at least chevron makes more profit because it's it's got a specialism in injecting uh, carbon dioxide into uh, its oil fields in order to get more oil out of it. So it has higher yielding. You know, it's got a specialism, which Exxon doesn't have. But even so, they are only focused on oil. And as such, they're, they're bad businesses. Yeah, it's been interesting because Chevron came out this week and very much said that. Their CEO very firmly said, we're not going to sort of bother transitioning towards renewables, but we're going to try and offset carbon emissions in our actual extraction processes. So I think they're very much banking on the fact that once BP and Shell are out of the way, they'll be able to occupy, well, they'll be the last man standing, I suppose, in the oil market. Possibly, possibly. Uh, However, um, it's much easier to absorb losses if oil is only half your business and renewables is the other half than it is if oil is your only business. And and so that puts BP and Shell and the other Europeans in a much better position. Okay, on to the issue. We led on the, the Chinese wind power. We did that because um, we've got a new report out and that's brilliant. We've got a new report out. I think, I think it's um, the best work we've done so far on wind. And I think it is a real global forecast which is likely to come to fruition unlike most of the rival companies doing forecasting out there they are just forecasting what's in the pipeline do you want to tell us a bit of detail about because you went into china in particular just as an example of what's in the report harry i think china is a really interesting one because it sort of summarizes why everyone else getting the wind market wrong and i mean other forecasters generally just follow the they follow, firstly, they follow the pipeline, and then secondly, they follow the targets that are set out by the countries. I mean, for China, if you follow the pipeline, you're always going to overestimate. Uh, if you follow the targets, you're always going to underestimate. So we're looking forward with China. We've seen them surpass their renewable energy targets for 2020. They're, gonna, they're about to release their 14 five-year plan where they'll inevitably say, I think they're looking to say something like 1,200 gigawatts of renewable capacity. I mean, if we combine our forecast for solar and for wind... Uh, we've already got more capacity for that in that time frame. So it's almost certain that they will push beyond this, but, but that will probably be due to a surge of the late decade. We're seeing around 647 gigawatts of wind power capacity by 2030. And so sort of the pipeline suggesting that there's going to be at least 100 gigawatts of that come online in the next sort of three years. What we will notice, though, is that there will be a dip in installations. So the feed-in tariff for wind power in China has been phased at the start of this year. 2021 starting to see a little bit of a slowdown. We might see some of the, sort of the tail end delayed projects coming online early on. Uh, and 2022 sort of will show sort of modest recovery. But 2023 is when we'll really start to see the bulk of that. So, so what does that mean, that dip for... Um for developers that are based in China. Obviously, you know, they're trying to wait to do Chinese installations because they want to make them as profitable as possible. If they're not going to have any subsidies, then they want to make sure that their uh, LCOE is as cheap as possible so that they, they're they likely to make more money. Um, so do they move outside of the country? Do they go to neighbouring countries and build up projects there? Um, I think that's something we'll see them do over the, over the next sort of year or so uh, i mean the thing about getting rid of feeding tariffs and stuff is that they sort of end these sort of three-year investment cycles where you just see sort of spikes in 
uh, installations. But I think we'll certainly see, start to see them exploring other countries, maybe through the Belt and Road Initiative or something like that. I mean, we, we know that we're going to see the turbine manufacturers start to sort of introduce these large turbines, which then they'll try to push into other markets, especially sort of Taiwan, Vietnam and Japan, where sort of offshore wind especially is going to really, really grow through the decade. Another thing that we'll see through this period of maybe a slowdown is that China will probably go to town on its uh, transmission network. So a lot of the wind power capacity that it will focus on is um, like solar in in Mongolia, where they've got this massive land resource, high high wind speeds, good solar output. But currently there's not great transmission and to sort of stop curtailment, obviously these new projects need to come in. And I think that that's something we'll see. And I mean, the HVDC cables is something we're also going to see through Belt and Road. So I think generally China will be sort of starting to push beyond its own its own borders in terms of renewable energy capacity. I mean, I think that we've got you know a little macrocosm here of the sort of climate crisis with um, Belt and Road Initiative has really been used by uh, coal plant industry to sell China's uh, wares abroad into Africa and uh, the rest of Asia. And as those projects cannot get funding, as we hear more and more that they're lacking in funding, and in the same way that things like LNG deals cannot get funding, the, the options start to narrow for all the countries in Africa, places like Bangladesh, Pakistan, Vietnam as well. And so what what their reaction will be and what the what the UN and the World Bank are saying to those countries is put more renewables in. Where will we get those renewables from? I know China. It just seems to make sense that the Belt and Road Initiative becomes one of uh, which is, has been damaging to renewable energy in the last three or four years in that it's it's promoted the idea of building coal plants in um, areas that don't have high levels of electricity and if that transforms as i think it will into well okay we'll put up some wind turbines um we'll, we'll build some solar panels we'll um, build a bit of a transmission network across africa i think uh, that will still serve china's political purposes perfectly well but the renewable industry will benefit enormously yeah, it's really interesting thinking of that because what we've seen through China's net zero pledges and through other sort of movements they've made in, in terms of climate legislation is that they do generally almost follow what's going on in Europe. But the the fact that so the UK, for example, has said that they're not going to fund fossil fuel projects that are abroad means that it'd be unusual to see China not make the same sort of pledge in the next sort of five year time frame. One of the stories that uh, annoyed the hell out of me was how um, Mitsubishi Power put out a press release claiming to be the world number one in uh, energy storage, which was something they're going to do in five years' time, it turns out. And it's something we've known about since the early part of 2019. It started out, I I was fairly annoyed that they were uh, trying to make mileage out of... um, It turns out there are salt cabins five or six of them, the size of the the Empire State Building um, in in Utah. What's happened is the um, one of the coal closures that's going to um, be forced um, is a Utah-based coal plant which serves Los Angeles. And so they kind of decided to replace like with like by building salt cabins for, for hydrogen storage ahead of time so that they will drive tur- gas turbines which will power Los Angeles. Uh, you know, this coming out of a press release saying 
you know, we're the largest uh, battery company in the world, when, when actually it's not going to happen for five years. It's still uncovered for me, because I didn't really know about it, uh, a massive project, 1.9 billion to be spent preparing for a hydrogen, for the emergence of hydrogen turbines, gas turbines, which will probably won't be with us till 2030, because they, um, so I just found that story just bizarre. What you said at one point in the story was how, how obviously California is shifting to lithium-ion battery to keep its uh, grid running. And you'd said, well, if California has enough of those, it won't use this. So why is that? So when we looked at the uh, energy storage growth, we saw it was being triggered from the states. We saw that um, uh, there was very early testing and widespread testing of lithium-ion to, uh, to work alongside renewables, in particular solar. And that nearly every contract that's been signed during 2020 for solar in California in, included some level of energy storage as lithium-ion batteries. Not always lithium-ion, but mostly. And they, they've got grasped this nettle of the intermittency of solar and said, well, if we can balance it with uh, lithium-ion batteries, um, and um, we, we will have dispatchable power from solar. And that's... I mean, there's everybody's very keen to talk about the wildfires in California and the blackouts, not never quite remembering that the blackouts came because people switched off the electricity because they didn't want to create wildfires, not because solar failed in some way. Um, and so so this is belt and braces. This the idea is we're going to have lots and lots of 200, 300 uh, megawatt uh, battery installations and we're going to have them all over California and we're going to use that so that we can have a higher penetration of solar. That's our plan. But our second plan is, you know, so we're going to borrow a piece of another state. We're going to bury stuff in the ground, uh, hydrogen in the ground. We're going to create um, uh, electrolyzers and we're going to have a second backup just in case. Um, and we're going to pay $1.9 billion for it. I don't know if you realise that California is the most, some of the most expensive electricity in the world, certainly in America. And it's uh, substantially higher than all the other uh, states. And it's, it's really because of this type of approach, which is we're going to have belt and braces and, and something else to, to make sure that, we, uh, that it can't go wrong. Uh, how Mitsubishi Power have managed to pick up yeah, half of that money already is just beyond me because uh, it's effectively they managed to sell them at another gas turbine. Talk to me, Andreas, about um, panel sizes in China and why they're important. Back in 2019, you first saw this, this update to panel sizes from 156 millimeter, or well not panel sizes, cell sizes and wafer sizes. Right. Although that does that does pan into the whole module and make them bigger as well. Uh, they upgraded to 166 millimeters, mostly during the course of 2020, and I think they're most of the market now. But now the new thing is 182 millimeter versus 210 millimeter, and it's been in the news for a while. But basically, because it's because it's a big jump in size. You kind of, for a lot of processes in the manufacturing chain, you have to choose which you're going to do. That means you now almost have two rival uh, alliances of manufacturing companies. And of course, they each want to have as much market share as they can. 
because that means you've got more economies of scale and you're less vulnerable to interruptions to the supply chain. You don't want to be running on a small supply chain. And I think maybe that is part of why that rivalry could be part of why there's so much um, manufacturing expansion going on in China right now. It's vastly overshooting the actual global demand, I think. It's the same as um, as wind turbines. You know, if you have yes. a, a larger swept area, you know, you get more energy. If you have a larger surface area of your panel, you get more energy.